Jesus expected obedience, which is this fourth principle called consecration. Of course, it is faith that brings us into union with Christ, which is a gift of God mediated by the Holy Spirit. By being saved by faith, we are simply saying God does it all. It's all an expression of His grace, His initiative. But that faith is given expression in our lifestyle through obedience. So when Jesus speaks to His disciples, He doesn't ask them to recite a creed or to shake His hand or kneel at an altar. You remember what He asked them? Follow Me. That was the invitation, which was to say, if you really believe who I am, if you want to lay your life on the line and trust yourself into my care, then follow me. So obedience becomes the means by which these disciples continue to grow and to learn with Jesus every day. Now, they were slow learners, to be sure. Like many of us, there were some things that those disciples had difficulty comprehending. One, I think, most obvious is their lack of understanding the theological implications of the atonement. It would appear that they, up until the end, did not want Jesus to die. In fact, they could not even comprehend a Jesus having to die for the world. And I can understand their hesitancy because when they started following Jesus, that was not in the back of their mind. They still had absorbed the popular messianic expectation that Jesus was the Messiah who would overthrow all of their enemies. And they would live in that, in that sense of His glory. They had not really comprehended the 53rd chapter of Isaiah or many other of the Old Testament prophecies that clearly said that Jesus would be the sacrifice, the Lamb of God offered by the Lord for the world. When this was brought clearly to their attention at Caesarea Philippi, about halfway through their training period, Jesus was talking with the disciples and He asked them a characteristic question. What are you hearing among the people? What are they saying about Me? The disciples responded, well, many people believe you are a prophet. But really, Jesus wanted to go deeper than that. He said, well, what do you think? What do you believe? And it was old Peter, bless his heart, who spoke up. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, Peter had it right. But Jesus reminded him that was not just something that he had learned by 
observation. That had been a revelation given to him by God. And he went on to say, Upon this rock I will build my church. Nothing will overcome it. Nothing will prevail against it. Not even the gates of hell. Now, there are different ways that people have interpreted the meaning of that rock. Some believe that it refers to Christ Himself. Others believe it refers to that announcement that Jesus is the Son of God. Others believe that it relates to Peter as the spokesman or the leader of the church. But however you want to look at it, don't miss the obvious. It was only after Peter expressed his personal conviction, his personal faith, that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Only after he had given witness to what he had trusted his life to, that Jesus said he would raise up his church. Evangelism is the heartbeat of it. You may be perfectly correct in your theology, but what does that mean to a lost world? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. It is when people can hear the gospel that by His Spirit working in them, they can embrace the good news and be saved. Interestingly, at this point, the text goes on to say, Jesus began now openly to tell them about His decease. How that before many days pass, He would go to Jerusalem. He would be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes. He would be killed. But He added, on the third day, I'll rise from the grave. Now with this clear announcement of the resurrection, you would have thought those disciples would have been jumping up and down with joy. They're on the winning side. The one that they're following is going to defeat the last enemy, the grave itself. But I expect if someone had been there with a camera, their faces would have looked as long as a mop handle. Or someone down in Texas would say, a face so long they could suck marbles out of a gopher's hole. For when they started to follow Jesus, this was not what they had in mind. They wanted to be numbered among the followers of the King who would reign in glory over the kingdom. I can sympathize with Peter, but not just Peter. Jesus turned now to the whole group around him and said, If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For if you seek only to save your own life, 
you think only of your interests, you're going to lose it. But if you'll lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. He doesn't accuse the disciples of disobedience. It's obvious they have so much more to understand. But he simply brings out a principle that he states in different ways again and again and again through these years that they are together. The principle of the cross, which means you recognize you are not your own now. You belong to Him who gave Himself for you. You are, as Paul said, crucified with Christ. And indeed, this is a lesson that is not easy to learn. In fact, I suspect all of us continue to learn more of its implications as we follow Christ. As the Spirit leads us to recognize areas of our lifestyle that are still unsurrendered, that still reflect that self-interest and that preoccupation with our own sense of personal worth. It often takes a lot of hard knocks before we recognize how utterly undone we are. But Jesus wants us to realize, even in the beginning, that obedience is without reservation. And as we grow in knowledge and grace and come to see more aspects of our life that are not in harmony with Him, we should acknowledge the truth gratefully and confess that sin. And the promise is He is just and faithful to forgive us our sin and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. We don't have to go to bed at night with a guilty conscience. Isn't that beautiful? The Scripture says if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. For there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath set us free from the law of sin and death. Isn't that beautiful? If you're aware of something in your life that's not in harmony with the will of God, why do you insist on going your own way, ignoring the conviction of the Spirit? He's pointed out that failing, that error, that sin, because He knows there's something better for you. That's what sin does. The horror of sin is not just the judgment that it brings. The horror of sin is that it keeps us from becoming what God wants us to be, what He made us to be, 
when He ordained that we should know Him and love Him and rejoice in Him forever. Oh, to miss that is to miss the whole reason for our existence. Aren't you glad God's not, not through with us yet? <laughs> There's still room for us to learn. And the best is yet to be. But we've got to keep walking as He leads us. And as many as are led by the Spirit of God, He tells us, they are the sons of God. It's interesting that when, after the resurrection and His ascension into heaven, He sends forth the disciples, He says they are to go forth as His witnesses, beginning where they live, but finally they're going to multiply and eventually the church will reach the ends of the earth. The word witness, as I suspect you understand, literally translates martyr. In the Greek, the Greek language, it's one and the same word. And certainly the disciples understood its meaning. For when they embraced Christ, they embraced the cross. And they recognize, in so doing, they lost the support of the sensate culture around them, and they were no longer going to be given the praise of this world. Virtually, they were alone now, trusting only Christ. They were His witnesses. They had already confronted the issue of the cross and realized they belonged to Him who loved them and gave Himself for them. Now, not all of them lived up to that. There were those who tried to accommodate the world and work out some kind of a, of a, of a compromise, just as there are today. And this was one reason the Apostle Paul wrote the churches. And you remember how he told them to reckon themselves to the fact they're dead? Dead to sin, dead to the world, but alive unto God. And he himself said to the church at Rome, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. That's what sets you free. And if you have that commitment, I'll tell you, the devil has got a problem on his hands. For you've already met the enemy, and you're more than conquerors. And this is the kind of commitment that will give us a victorious lifestyle. Not just when we are with the opponents around us, but especially those who are seeking to follow this same principle in Islam. Though motivated by a devious reason and ensnared with a false ideology, those in the radical group of Islam are dedicated people, they'll blow themselves up. They will die for what they profess. 
And if we cannot meet that same commitment, we are no match for Islam. And this is the challenge before the church today. We have, have to forsake this dilly-dallying around. We've got to come to grips with what we already profess, that we have embraced the cross. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to Him who bore our sins in His own body on that tree. But praise God, He rose triumphant from the grave. Obedience. I think of those five missionaries that were martyred a few years ago down in Ecuador. Received a lot of publicity in this country for a while, and it caught my attention. And the thing that so challenged me was the report that came back from a man who had gone down to interview the widowed wives when it was all over. And he asked that proverbial question, a question that you will see asked in different ways all through the Bible. Why would God let that happen? As he explained, your husbands were on an errand of mercy. Why would a good God let them be cut down when they were only trying to help these poor natives? It's a reasonable question. Why do the righteous suffer? One of those wives turned to that reporter and said, Sir, I want you to understand God delivered my husband from the possibility of disobedience. You see, that's what the Christian fears. It's not death. Our Lord has already defeated that enemy. The grave has lost its sting. But there is a holy fear of disobedience because that alone will swerve us from that way that God has ordained for our life. Jim Elliot's wife had a, something of a premonition that he might not come back the last time he went into the jungle. And as he was leaving, she called after him and said, but Jim, suppose you don't come home. And in his typical way, he turned and said to his wife, if God wants it that way, why would I want it any other way? I'm willing to give my life for the Akas. That's commitment. And while we cannot understand all the ways that these work out in our own personal life. We know that God is still working through every circumstance for good to those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Obedience. That is the expression of our faith, and it's the way that we will continue to learn of our Lord every day. I remember before my
father died, we were together in the living room, the old home place down there in Texas. It was a cold day and I was standing there by the fire, keeping warm. Dad was sitting over here in a big easy chair and he turned to me and he said, Son, where does a man go when he goes out with God? And I was caught by surprise. At the moment, I don't know just what I was thinking about, but Dad must have seen my confusion. And he just smiled and he said, Well, son, does it matter? You just go wherever he wants to lead you. There's nothing to worry about. He knows the way. All you have to do is follow. He was thinking of that passage over in the 11th chapter of Hebrews where it says Abraham was called to go out. At least this is the rendering in the old King James Version, which is the version my dad used. And he obeyed, and he went out with God. But where's out? Where do you go when you go out with God? <laughs> well, you go wherever he wants to take you. There's nothing to worry about. He knows the way. All you have to do is follow. So after that, we're told Jesus realized that he was just a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. He had no dwelling place here. And he was content to live in tents and tabernacles. This was not really his home. But he was looking for the city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I want to go out. I'm not sure just where the path will lead, but I know this. I don't have to worry because Jesus knows the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that following Him, there is perfect peace. Peace that passes all understanding. Obedience. And yet, it's not the sense of duty that constrains us. Though, of course, that's the expression of our faith. But that's not its motivation. Jesus said, He that has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Love is the constraining, the motivating force in our life. For indeed, this is the great commandment of God. And it puts everything in a different perspective. When we follow Christ, whatever that may mean, whatever the difficulties might be, we follow Him in confidence because we love Him. Before Jesus returned to heaven, 
he met with the disciples there by the lake where many times they had walked along the shore before. They had been out fishing that night again. He called to them from the shore and asked about their catch, and they confessed they hadn't caught anything. Well, in his characteristic way, he told them how to meet their need by casting the net on the other side of the boat. And John recognized that voice. And he cried, It's the Lord! And at that, Peter couldn't restrain his excitement. I like Peter. He gets excited about things. He just dived in and swam ashore, leaving the other disciples with the job of pulling in the nets, which were now full of fish. But when they all got back on shore, Jesus had a fire kindled. And he invited them to bring over some of their fish and join him for breakfast. And then we read there in this 21st chapter of John's Gospel. After they had eaten, Jesus turned to the big fisherman and said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Oh, yes, Peter said, I love you. Remember how Jesus responded, then feed my sheep. Then a second time, Jesus asked that same question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And now, in the same way, Peter responded, yes, I love you. And Jesus told him, then take care of my sheep. But now, a third time, Jesus asked that same question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And now we're told Peter was grieved that Jesus asked him the third time. And I can understand that. I mean, what's he getting at? Why do you speak to me this way? Again, And I think I would have wondered myself, why ask me the third time? I remember when my son was just past his fourth birthday. It was in the fall season of the year, just about this time, and I was out in the backyard cleaning up my garden. And uh, he saw me working and it occurred to him that uh, I was thirsty. I'd probably worked up a sweat. And uh, so he went to the kitchen found a dirty glass down in the bottom of the sink 
and filled it full of hot water right out of the hydrant and next thing I knew I heard my name called and I turned around and here was Jimmy walking across the garden holding up that dirty glass of hot water and he said daddy I thought you was thirsty so I brought you a drink and there was a big smile that stretched all the way across his face from one ear to the other. <laughs> now you might say, couldn't he do better than that? Why, that's not cold water. That's not even pure water. And you'd be right. But when you looked at his face, you'd have to say that was pure love. He was doing the best that he knew to please his daddy. Say, that's the real question. And again and again, I can hear it echo in my mind through the years. Do you love me? And I can only respond as Peter did to Jesus on that third occasion. You know all things, Lord. You know everything about me. You know that I love you. Oh, that we can all respond that way today. You see, finally, he doesn't ask us the question that seems to be the expression of our activity. He doesn't ask us, do you obey me? He asks us the motivation, the reason for what we're doing. Do you love me? Because if you love him, you will obey him. That's the issue. Whom we love. That is the great commandment. We read it earlier. Moses summed it up in the law. It was repeated by Jesus. To love God with all your mind and soul and strength. This is the summation of the law. And to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Everything written in this book finally comes down to what we love. And indeed... This is the lifestyle of holiness. As Paul said, this is the bond of perfection, completeness, maturity, to love God supremely. With all that you know of yourself, you surrender all that you are to Him who is worthy, who gave himself for you. Ah. Is that your response to the question today? And as you live out that love in your daily practice, others around you will begin to see what it means. So stress the practical aspect of your faith 
which finds expression in deeds of love. Even if you give a cup of cold water in His name and for His glory, it reflects that love. It would be helpful, I think, with those few that are close to you to accept a discipline of devotion and work, as I mentioned with the little group that I like to meet with. That gives some structure to it. And as you have opportunity, try to expose those with you to situations that will challenge commitment. Like going to a lecture like this, or going to a revival meeting, or to a special seminar on communicating with our Muslim friends. Those that are with us, take along when we ourselves are being challenged. Let them understand that challenge as well. And learn together what it means to embrace the cross daily. Consecration. This is what Jesus asks of us. He doesn't ask us to recite the creed he asks of us to commit all that we know of ourselves to Him whom we believe is the way of God Himself. To follow Him. To obey Him. To express that deep love in our soul which wants to give expression to the lover of our soul. What a way to live. It's the way every believer in Christ should live every day. It's the lifestyle of the Great Commission.